Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Jason Bach. Jason is a developer advocate at Rocket Mortgage and a Microsoft MVP. He has over 25 years of experience. He is the author of several books, including .NET Development Using the Compiler API, he is a leader of the Twin Cities Code Camp and holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Marquette University. Yes. Well, welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. And it's going to be an interesting conversation, I think. Yeah. Be, uh, before we jump into the meat of it, would you give our listeners a little little more introduction to yourself? You know, perhaps tell them how you got started in the industry. Oh, way back in the aught fives. It's <laughs> <laughs> long time ago. Um, it, it's interesting, you know, that you mentioned from my my bio that I have a degree in, in electrical engineering because I don't even use it. Um, I started with computers when I was in seventh grade with an Apple IIe with a floppy disk that actually flopped. And, but it never became like a big obsession. I knew I was going to do stuff with computers. It was pretty obvious that was going to become a thing for everybody, you know, as time went on. But even though I did some basic programming, it never really stuck until I'd say I got into grad school and then I decided, you know, I, I decided with picking my, um, my master's thesis and what it was going to be on that, oh, this, this is pretty interesting because it was very mathematical based, but it was also very, uh, programming based. And I had to, I basically had to calculate pi out to 5,000 digits, but it, it was for a specific algorithm. And, I think that's when it really sunk in that that's what I wanted to do, you know, so maybe I should have done my degrees in comp sci, but yeah, it it still worked out in the end. So you finally got my first job and out of college in August of 1995, working in visual basic three, people still remember that. And, you know, that was, you know, that, that, again, that first job, like I'm just telling my son who got his first job in high school today, which I'm very happy about. It's that first thing on your resume. It's that first foot in the door, so to speak. And once I did that, then I actually got into consulting in February, 1998 and was a consultant for 23 years, 20 of which was with one company and did a whole bunch of client project work. Also started doing a lot of speaking, a lot of writing, those types of things. And, then eventually landed where I am right now, which is, as you said, developer advocate at Rocket Mortgage. Very cool. So what's uh, what's it been like for you to be a developer advocate? Uh, is that a major change for you and how have you enjoyed it? It's in some ways what I was looking to do with my previous job. You know, I, I took a role that was, that the plan was is to have about half my time being that those types of activities are similar to it. You know, where it was speaking, writing, you know, evangelism, uh, technical evangelism, and maybe some sales calls, but, and then also some billing time. And just over time that just started to erode and become less and less of that. And, you know, I, I said, is, you know, I've been doing 
those types of things for a long time in my career and having that being supported was something I was really looking forward to. And I just decided, you know, this is something I really, really want to pursue. This is something I really want to have as the thing to my job. And it just was happenstance. The last conference I was at in person uh, last year in March of 2020, I ran into Ted Neward, who I've known for many years. And we just started talking and the conversation started to swing to, well, how are, how are things your job? How are things going? And and I told him very honestly. <laughs> so that led to a, an hour-long conversation off in a corner somewhere. And then a couple months later, um, I came on board to Rocket Mortgage, which, you know, it's trying to do developer advocacy. And I, I don't mean to say this in a lighthearted, joking way, but trying to start something up because this is all new with what we were doing. When a pandemic is in full swing is just it sucked. It really, really did. And of course, COVID-19 in and of itself has been a horrendous thing. It's, it sucks. And so I don't want to, you know, that's again, why I'm not trying to sound like I'm joking about it in any way, but for what we were trying to accomplish. And then when this all happens, a lot of the things that you try to do in terms of being out in public and trying to spread the word about things, we just couldn't do, or we had to do them virtually. And it kind of put a, a damper on things to some way. So we had to scramble and figure out, well, what can we do and do maybe do some more internally focused things until this starts to open up. Um, so even though we're still kind of in this, we're trying to get there, but not really. So it, it's still a little touch and go at this point. Um, things are getting better. Um, I think we're starting to find out how we can work in a company like Rocket Mortgage, which, you know, is not a company that is known as a technology company. You know, you think of Microsoft or Amazon or Google, you know, even Amazon, which is like they sold books years ago. Well, they still do that, but they also have this whole big, you know, cloud platform. (laughs) So, (laughs) and, you know, admittedly for Rocket Mortgage, there isn't a lot of things like that that are, external or publicly facing. And that's what we're, you know, kind of challenged with and and trying to champion as the months and years go by, I think at this point is to start getting that, that focus to being more outwardly focused and, and how can we spread the word about some of the things is I can see the stuff we do internally. And it's like, Oh, that's cool, but it's all internal. So that's how, how do we spread that message and how do we get people to see it's more than just, Oh, you have cool, Super Bowl commercials with Tracy Morgan, which by the way, that one was funny. I, <laughs> when that came out this year, I saw that and I thought, because Super Bowl commercials, sometimes I think they're a little cheesy or whatever. I saw that one and I was like, okay, that one, Dave Bautista, I'm like, that that was pretty funny. I, I'll give him credit on that one. So, but there were more than just that. There's actually some very cool stuff going on and, and to get that out. So we're learning, we're, we're getting better at it as time goes on. And like looking back through through your bio and, and looking uh, at like your, your book on .NET development using the compiler API, it seems like you you have and and through through these conversations, it sounds like you've you've done a fair amount of speaking and 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 teaching and and attending and speaking at conferences and and participating in the community. Is is that? Do you think that that has uh, quite a bit to do with? landing a role in developer advocacy or how does that like how do you think that that has helped your career to to this 
to this point. I was a little confused until you got right to the end and I'm like, oh, okay, now, <laughs> now I know what you're getting at. So I think it's, I think it's definitely helped. Um, the, the writing is something, and again, this is just my two cents, my, my take on it. Somebody else who's maybe done speaking and writing will have a different, different story. But for me, um, writing has mostly been a task of, of passion in the sense that I, I really like writing. I like putting stuff in words, getting it out there, even if it's just a blog post or an article online or a book. It's something that I, I do enjoy and I, and I like doing it. Um, the, the problem is, is that writing doesn't pay bills. At least for me, it didn't. And it's it's more of a thing that you can say, I wrote this and hopefully it's gotten some good reviews. Hopefully people have gotten something out of it. And and, and then you can kind of use that to be a resume patter. That's that, that trivializes it in some ways. And again, that's not my intention, but it also can be, well, this is something I've done and that, and also doing, you know, conferences, user groups, co-camps, all those things, and showing that you're willing to be out there in front of people, communicating different aspects of technology and, and, doing you know the best you can at it and trying to build those relationships out there. Those I think definitely help if you're trying to get into developer relations, developer advocacy, because again, it's, it's not DevRel means you're speaking at conferences. It's like, that's not the only thing you're doing, but that external aspect where you are talking to the, the world in, in a sense, you're talking to people, you don't know who they are. They're not people that you work with on a day-to-day basis. And you have to figure out how do you connect with them very fast and and speak in a way such that they're getting what you're talking about, they understand it, and they will come up to ask questions afterwards and hopefully build a rapport with them. So I think it definitely helps. Um, I just if if people are looking to, you know, hey, I, I want to start doing some of these activities, and you know, I'm thinking about writing a book. Well, writing a book again when I started, I remember going, I think it was in Washington, DC. I remember doing like an event out there and they had this thing for like two hours at this bookstore that I was going to sit at and people could come and talk to me for, I don't know why, but they did. (laughs) So the thing I remember, it was actually a whole bookstore for just technical books. Like literally the whole bookstore was just programming and technical books. And if you remember the, the rocks books, those big red rocks books, you know, I mean, some of it was, you could see the red scattered all over the place. Um, but that, that just doesn't even remotely exist anymore. You don't have bookstores that are just, that are just like programming and technical books. So it's, it's a vastly different world from then to now, but you know, it, it's still the, the writing, the speaking, those types of things, even if it's that, that can help build your skills in terms of writing documentation or communications they have to do between developers and clients and, and things like that. Um, it, the, those skills definitely get sharpened when you do those types of things. Speaking of the the book and, and uh, the content of the book about the compiler API, is that as deep as it, of a subject as it seems like, or is there stuff in that book that your average developer might be able to apply to the code they're working on? It's... It's definitely something that is when I whenever I talk about anything related to the compiler API, it is definitely not a trivial endeavor. 
I, so I could, and I try to say that because I want to level set with people's expectations. You know, sometimes I've, I've gone on stage and shown things with, you know, analyzers or source generators. And the end result is you can do some very extremely powerful things. The flip side is, is that you do have to understand at least to some degree what this API is providing to you. It's syntax trees, it's semantic models, it's stuff that is, you know, you don't have to write a parser, but you have to understand that this is the stuff that comes out of lexing and parsing and, and you get this object model and what do all these things mean? And, and you quickly realize just all these little corner cases in C sharp that you never even thought of because, oh yeah, you can do it this way, even though you may not be coding that way is perfectly valid C sharp. So, you know, the, the book that I wrote is actually only 150 pages. You could probably easy, if you wanted to do like a real deep dive on everything in the compiler API, I mean, you could write a tome. You, you'd, you know, you challenge Donald Knuth with all of his books in terms of size because <laughs> there's just so much there. Um, but when I wrote that book, I was trying to be <clears throat> very high, not high level, but very focused and just saying, if you want to do something with it, Hence the using part. Here's how you do this. Now, I didn't cover every nuance in every corner case either. Um, and again, there's just a lot, a lot there. So I, I, I like talking about it, though, because it is so immensely powerful. I mean, th- think about this. We People get very excited about what's the latest in ASP.NET or Blazor's really cool. Or now we got this, you know, thing called Maui coming out. It's always like the, the hot things. And people sometimes jump and gravitate towards those and great, cool. That's awesome. But the, the one thing that every C sharp developer uses is a compiler. Now you may not use it like directly in the sense of you're programming against it, but at some point you're using an IDE or using something at the command line to say, compile my code. And so there's this thing there that magically takes your text into something that can actually be executed on your computer and the great thing about the compiler API is that it says, oh, by the way, all this cool stuff that we know, we can let you know about it to build all sorts of things that we couldn't even think of. And that that to me is so incredibly powerful and empowering for developers. You know, there's, there's tools I've written. There's things that I know other people have written that make me go, wow, that's just, you know, that's just fascinating or cool or really interesting that you can do with this stuff. And if people do take that investment in time, then they have the ability to do, to do some things that go well beyond what their tool set was before. And they can start saying, hey, maybe we can do these types of things, or maybe we can look for these things in our code. And now all of a sudden, you've got a, a much more powerful arsenal at your disposal. So how hard would it be to write something that would go through a program and replace all the loops with recursion. Um, <laughs> so, I, I, um, I think I'm going to freeze at this at this point in the conversation because <laughs> my mind just hit a recursive loop. Um, yeah, I, I seriously hope you're kidding. Because <laughs> I'm like, why would you want to do that anyway? Torture yourself. Clay- um, Clayton does think <laughs> this is what he does. This is what he does. Yeah, no, no that that one was that one was pretty much just for fun. But um, <laughs> uh, what are some of the things that you can do with the compiler API that that might be interesting to somebody? Though, I mean, 
certainly, certainly, I mean, a lot of us could all just geek out on, on like the, Ooh, I can do this thing and I can manipulate that or I can, you know, whatever. But what are some of the things that might actually be useful that, that someone could apply, um, as, as something that maybe analyzes their own code or fixes something or, or something like that? What are some of the things we could do? So I'll give you a couple of examples. So I think you've already said these terms. I've said um, analyzers, code fixes, refactorings, uh, source generators. Um, let me just give a couple of examples on a couple of these things. Um, so the first one that most people hear of when they hear the compiler API is analyzers. I want to look at my code because I want to find conditions that the compiler itself doesn't know about, nor should it ever have to be you know, built to know about. But I want to catch it. And I want to let my developer know something's wrong. An example of this is, if you remember way back in WCF days, if you've ever done that, there was this attribute you could put on your operation called is one way. And so what that would do is basically say, as soon as the client calls the service and the services, you know, it, this operation is going to do something, then it's like fire and forget. It's going to keep, just keep going off and the client can do something else. Caveat to this is that your method had to return void. But you could write a WCF service, put that attribute on your method and have it return a string, compile it. Compiler doesn't care. It doesn't know about that rule. You could even write a unit test where you just new up your service and you don't host it and it runs successfully and you're good. Only when you actually try to deploy it and host it and you run it, do you realize you get this really big WCF error. And I may have actually had that happen to me once, which is why I'm <laughs> telling you all this. So the, the point is you want to take that time of failure from the way out to deployment or even worse when it gets into production to the sound of one hand clapping, which is on your local machine, you know, then the, the damage is minimized. And so if I can write an analyzer that looks at my code and says, Hey, you've marked this method with is one way, but you actually have something that you're returning. It's not void. Then you can have the analyzer give a diagnostic which shows up in your error list in Visual Studio or in the command line, which show up as an error because you can set that severity and then stop the developer in their tracks and say, no, you have a problem. And then in some cases, depending upon what that analyzer is doing, you might be able to provide a code fix. So one example I give is if you don't want people to use daytime now, you want them to use daytime UTC now because you don't want everything local. You want to have that, the UTC expect. So you could actually create an analyzer that looks for that property usage and then a code fix that would say, change it to UTC now. That might be something else you want to do. Um, for a source generator, I, thought, I, I think I just recently tweeted that I think source generators are one of the best C-sharp features ever added because they're just so insanely enabling you know, I, powerful, you know, sort of, yeah, but in, in terms of what they allow a C-sharp developer to do, it's pretty much the sky's the limit. You can generate any code you want at compile time and provide all this functionality to a developer just because they're literally typing something. Um, for example, one of the examples I've done with source generators is a mocking library called Rocks, which I've had off for a while it actually generates um, mock types in C-sharp code, but it was doing it at runtime. And then I would just compile that that text that I created and have the compiler compile it. Well, when the source generators came out, source generators let you 
generate code, not just at compile time, but also if the IDE is going off and doing stuff, it may fire your source generator so you get this near real-time experience. So I was able to change all that to being compile time generated. So I just literally today, there's, there's a... Um, there's a repository on GitHub where somebody did this benchmark of all the popular mocking frameworks out there, of which mine is not one of them. But it's I, I put it out there anyway because I was just I did that years ago because I just wanted to see what was the performance of it compared to like MOQ or N Substitute, Fake It Easy, other ones like that. And I just updated it so that it's targeting .NET five because you need to be targeting .NET five for this and then updated all the frameworks, including rocks. And the results are, it's by far the fastest out of any of them, purely because it's generating all this code that gets compiled into your assembly. So it's as fast as any other C-sharp can run. There's no reflection. There's nothing like that going on. So anything that, and that's one example I give to people, is anything you're doing with reflection, think about how you could turn that into a source generator because then that gets baked into your assembly. If you want to do trimming, it can be trimmed out because maybe some of that stuff actually isn't used in your code. So you can get that benefit to whereas reflection, that's much, much harder to do and try to figure out like what you can actually trim out and what you can't. So, you know, th- those are just a couple of examples that, that come to mind. Um, and then you can use this API just as building a tool. So these, there's these uh, NuGet packages you can build called .NET tools, which are just console apps, but they're packages, NuGet, uh, NuGet packages. And so I created one a couple of years ago that basically said, look at a code base and try to figure out an editor config based on the style that exists in the code. So for example, do you like using var or do you like using the type name? You can use a compiler API to parse all that code, look at how you do your declarations and say, oh, do statistics. Oh, you really like using var or you really like using a type name? And then add all those up and then at the end say, well, for this style that you can put in editor config, which one wins? And then you, I would just put that in there and then give somebody an editor config. And so it just generated one. You didn't have to, you know, because editor configs are great, but it's a fair amount of work to try to figure out, well, what are all the styles I want to put in there? What are all the things that, you know, that I actually want to have it be set correctly? This tool, because I can parcel your code, just figures it out for you. So that does seem a little dangerous, though, if you start parsing the code that I work on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe. I mean, for for something like that editor config tool, it's pretty germane. So yeah, so I, I remember when Rosalind was first announced or, or first being discussed out in the community six or eight years ago, because it seems like a a language has really come into its own when its compiler is written in the language itself, and with that, you know, not really being. In, inside that inner circle of really understanding what all that means or why that's so so important, it seems like that has been the catalyst to uh, to allow all the other neat advancements to come about in recent years, like like what we were just discussing about uh, code analyzers and and um, you know, things like that. It's been enabling and it's been. Uh, you know, empowering in a lot of different ways, not just with those features, which just to give a real short summary of the history, um, 
I actually found out that the whole idea that C Sharp could, should compile C Sharp was something that I think they really wanted from the get-go. But, you know, these things like time, pressure, schedules get in the way. So it was just easier to get a compiler in C or C++ up and running. But the intent was for it to always be C Sharp based. And so it just took that long over so many years to where it finally in 2015 became the the reality. And from C Sharp 6 on, that's what you compile against is C Sharp. But in 2014, they announced that the compiler API was going to be going open source. So if you remember this on in Build or Anders Heilsberg's on stage saying, let's open source this on CodePlex. That shocked me. I mean, you know, by that point, everybody, they, they had released beta bits, preview bits of it. But um, even being an MVP, you know, something at that when you're an MVP, you sometimes get a little bit of inner workings under an NDA. Um, you know, I don't think I ever heard anybody saying anything about that. And when they announced it on stage, I was kind of shocked that they would do that. And to me, it wasn't just that one event, but it was also just the you know just the fact that they're taking that core part, that compiler, and making it open source. It started to even have there was dominoes falling before that. That just seemed to make the dominoes fall even faster. And you see Microsoft themselves being very open to open source, which was not the way it was many years ago. So having that technical aspect of the compiler, you know, and the compiler API being a core part of what you do, but also being it opened up so you can use it to do all this cool stuff you do in C sharp, but that the very nature of that environment is open source and you can go in and submit a pull request, you know, not to change the language, you know, please don't do that because <laughs> they're going to reject <laughs> that outright. Oh, I got this cool idea for the language. I think you should use a tilde pound backslash and that will just do this cool stuff with the rate. Yeah. Don't do that. They'll, They'll reject it outright. Um, but you, if you really want to, you could potentially write a language feature. You could write a bug fix. You could do documentation. You could do maybe a little additional feature, you know, and something just in the compiler API itself. You know, the, the fact that the community can and is part of it now is, and, and really the entire .NET system as a whole being open source, there's a lot more community collaboration and that is empowering in and of itself. Earlier when we were talking about the, the analyzers and the code fixes, well, I guess, and the refactorings, how do you, so you, you develop the code using the compiler API, but then how do you apply those to your project? Do they have to be visual studio extensions or are they NuGet packages or do you have to like, do something weird with with uh, MS Build or, or .NET Runtime? Like, how do you actually use those things? Um, you get some duct tape and some chewing gum, maybe some bailing wire, you know, it just a whole bunch of stuff. It, it's, um, it's actually the nice thing about it is because it's at the compiler is that in a lot of ways, you don't have to do anything fancy. For example, if you want to write a source generator, all you really need to do is start a new class library project, have the right NuGet packages referenced, and then just implement a class or ha create a class that implements iSource generator and has the generator attribute on it. That's it. Now, how you deploy that 
typically you're going to make a NuGet package. That's the easiest way for analyzers and, and code fixes and source generators. Make them NuGet packages. That just seems to be the best way to do it. But there's nothing Visual Studio or Windows specific to this at all. This is just part of the compiler. So if you like VS Code, if you like Writer, if you like some other IDE that I can't think of or some other tool, at some point you can hook this into CSC or .NET Build if you need, if you really need to, and just say, I want to reference this package that has my analyzers or code fixes or source generators in them, and it will just work. So yeah, there, there's, you know, you can actually make analyzers as Visual Studio extensions, though I don't know, I, I personally don't recommend it because then they're installed for everything within Visual Studio. And some of these analyzers may be package specific, like you're only writing them. The, the WCF case I made, um, or the example I gave before, you'd really only want to target that for something that's targeting WCF. It has no context outside of that. So I've written analyzers for a package from uh, somebody that I used to work with and I've known for many years, Rocky Latka. He's written this framework called CSLA. And I wrote some analyzers for that. And so those are very specific to CSLA, but um, they catch things that people do or shouldn't do. Um, there's ones for X unit and unit, all other ones that people have written. And so again, you just want that NuGet package for just those projects because that's where it makes the most sense. So, but yeah, you'd, you make it a NuGet package, can run on Linux, can run on Windows, can run anywhere.net runs. Yeah, I think I've seen some of the the messaging within Visual Studio on suggestions of including certain analyzers or you know, installing those separately or pulling those in as separate NuGet packages, for instance. It's a little unfortunate that NUnit doesn't have its analyzers come because I'm an NUnit fan. And they have an analyzers package, and I wish it would come just come along for the ride. You have to remember to install it separately. But then it catches all these little things. Like if you had a test case attribute and you're trying to parameterize a meth, uh, test method and your first argument was a string, but you're, you have in the test case attribute an integer, it's going to catch that while you're in your IDE telling you that's not going to be able to work because you can't pass that in. So you're like, oh, then you can just fix it. But again, it's that, that quickness of knowing as soon as that happens that you've made a mistake. So um, yeah, yeah. I hope you can tell that I'm excited about this stuff. I mean, I, I, this this ability to use all this information that the compiler has, I, I find is so there's there's so much you can do with it, and that's why I like talking about it because I want other people to test it out, try it out, experience it, start thinking about ways you can use it yourself because there, there's there's a lot of power there. Yeah, I feel like there there's so many things that I just don't even I'm not even aware that they exist or that they're that that it's a possibility for something to use because my my first thought when I think about Rosalind for instance is uh, I can run a a web application in IIS Express or in Rosalind and uh you know I I'm getting some code hints or I'm getting some auto completion or I'm getting uh, some some analysis or some analyzers, and and I understand that part of that has to do with the functionality that the 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 compiler API provides. I just don't know what else is out there. So, are there other pieces that that you feel like people should be aware of, or or should be looking into, or or should be equally excited about? Um, in terms of things related to the compiler API, or uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
it's I'm struggling to answer it a little bit because there's like with anything, there's a little bit of a, well, well, here, here's the not so good side about it. Um, And with the compiler API, I don't feel it gets as much love and attention as some other things like ASP.NET, EF, um, in terms of documentation, um, evangelism, those types of things. You don't see a ton of people going out and saying, you know, hey, let's go look at the next thing and and what you can do with source generators. You know, it, it's the, the people that get excited about it. It's it's not a a big community, so to speak. Lots of people like to talk about, oh, I'm an ASP.NET developer. Um, but you don't see a lot of people talking about, oh, I'm a compiler API developer or something. I mean, <laughs> you, know, they, you don't hear that as often, and I, and I wish that would change. So, um, so the, the the point of what I think I'm trying to get at with what your your question was is trying to get into this and finding out what you can do with it. It is a little bit of an adventure, um, and yeah, you mentioned my book. I'd even say at this point you may not want to read it because it's six years old at this point. And um, I don't even know how much of it would be relevant. And, and some things that you do to set up your projects and some things you do with the API, APIs that are even in there, it can be, you know, it, it changes. I mean, because the compiler is changing. So the language is changing. So what you thought worked a couple of years ago may not be the way it is now. Like for example, in C sharp, there there were two types: a class and a struct. C sharp nine, there are records. Even though a record is a class, and in C sharp ten, you can make record structs. But and I don't have my tools open right now, so I can't take a look at this. But I'm almost positive that there is a record declaration syntax that derives from a type declaration syntax, and that didn't exist before. So you get these things added into the API just because the language is changing. And now you're like, well, how does this actually work if I'm trying to find this in a syntax tree? So it's, I think you definitely need a little bit of an adventurous soul, so to speak, if you want to look into this stuff. But but there are tools that you can use in Visual Studio and other people provide that if you know about them, it makes spelunking a lot easier. So it's, it's not, I'll say if you want to do it in Visual Studio, make sure you got the compiler API SDK installed and look at the syntax visualizer window. Cause that has helped me so many times trying to figure out what it is that I'm exactly looking for. Sounds like you also need a second edition of your book too. <laughs> to, no, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been, I've been asked a couple times in like the last year or two, if I want to, Hey, do you want to write another book from some publishers? And I've very politely said, thanks, but no, thanks. It's just the time it takes to put into these books and the return on investment, not just financially is at this point in my life, it's just not really worth it, you know? And, and it doesn't, that doesn't mean, cause I said, in 2003, I'm done. I'm never going to write another book again. And then in 2012, I wrote this metaprogramming book with Kevin Hazard. And then I, then I said, no, I'm done. I'm never going to write another one after that. And then I wrote this compiler API book. And I said, no, now I'm really, now I'm never going to do it again. So, you know, I guess there's always a chance, but it is a lot of work. It is um, a lot of time. And so 
on the one hand, I've those two books, I've thought about, well, could there ever be like a second edition of them if the publisher is interested? But I had to say, am I interested in doing that? And not really. <laughs> All right. So we'll look, we'll look for .NET Maui in 2022. <laughs> so for some of our more adventurous listeners, uh, are there any other resources that you might point people to? Yeah, I'd say, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, and I'll get you this link. Um, after we're done with all the recording and stuff. But many moons ago, there was this thing called MSDN. And that was like the docs from Microsoft. And you get this big packet of disks that you just throw around the office because they're like Frisbees. And, you know, that's supposed to be the documentation. But what did people do? You didn't go to MSDN. You went somewhere else because, and I'll be this blunt, it sucked. It was, you know, it was very hit and miss. And some things you would look for would be like, that's not even correct or that's, you know, or I can't even find it. Of course, when the internet takes over, you can find out so much more out there, but I will say this with docs.microsoft.com. It's a much better story these days. You know, you can actually point people to documents there and say, you're going to find some good information there. So there is actually a whole section on the .NET compiler on docs. Um, microsoft.com and that has good information there now again there's i could probably list a hundred resources for you that i found over the years that have helped me along but i would say if there's one actually start there because it will go through the basics it will get you started and then it's kind of up to you to go okay if i'm really into this to take those next steps and, and dive even deeper so i'll make sure i get that link to everybody uh, I do believe that on this particular episode, you have introduced me to too much power. So thank you. <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those maybe looking to level up their own careers? Man, that's a that's a great question. Um, when I say that, whenever a speaker says, that's a great question, it's because they're going, I'm stalling for time because I have no idea how to answer it. <laughs> and whenever they explain that that's why they said that, then they're really stalling for time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, for, for leveling up my career, I, I would say it's – it really – I don't want to say attitude because attitude sounds – maybe a little bit negative, but I think it's, it's kind of like attitude. It's perception. It's how you view things and specifically how do you view things in technology? And what I'm getting at is you really have to be open to learning. You have to be really open to it. And I say this now as, you know, this is a podcast so nobody can see. I, I'm, but I'm making this point more and more as I get older, all these grays that are in my, in my facial hair, you know, it, it you know, I'm not, I'm not a young person anymore. But it's still very important to to listen to other people, to be open to what people are saying. Sometimes they may not be the same view that you have. Sometimes if you know you're on a project and somebody makes a decision that you don't necessarily agree with, um, I'd say that I bring this up in terms of leveling up because I think it's one of those things of you have to be willing to work with other people. You're not going to get your way. Every single time, you know, it, I'd love to, but in some ways I actually wouldn't because I'm fallible just like anybody else is. And if, if I'm the one making decisions all the time, some of those are going to be wrong, probably 
you know, some percentage and we're not going to argue about how much percentage that is, but some percentage depends on the day, I guess. So I want to hear from other people. I want to hear from what other people are saying, what their ideas are, because they probably got some good ones and that's going to help. You know, I, it's very hard to be on projects where you have that movable force that just will not, I mean, at some end of the day, somebody's got to make a decision on a project. Somebody's got to say, we're going to go in this direction. Okay. That person's made the decision. You may not agree with it, but support it. You know, so for, and I say that in terms of career, because I think that's the, like the one thing that out of other things, but that's one thing that comes to mind right now is that ability to be flexible. And that's not necessarily easy for me. It may not be easy for some other people, but is to, to work with a team, to work with other people, you have to have some level of flexibility and being open to learning and listening. Excellent. Uh, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Um, you can go to Twitter if you so dare. I have an account out there, at Jason Bach. Um, LinkedIn, I think it's, you know, there's, a, there's a bunch of Jason Bachs out there. It's fun when you look up your name. There's, <laughs> there's other people out there. Um, I think it's like the... The specific link is Jason Arbach, but again, I'll, I'll get all these links to everybody here so you can post them later. Um, but those are, that's like the, per, the LinkedIn is a professional only and I keep it very just strictly that. Twitter, it can go off into different angles, but I also do talk about some things that I do because part of my life is programming and technical stuff. And I love talking about that amongst many other things. So those, and I do have a website. It is jasonbach.net. It is woefully behind the times and I really need to like do something with GitHub pages or something and get, get that stuff updated. <laughs> so, so you can go there and hopefully someday very soon, I'll actually have a, a, a better, more modern version of it. Well, Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. All right. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Jason Bach. Jason is a developer advocate at Rocket Mortgage and a Microsoft MVP. He has over 25 years of experience. He's the author of several books, including .NET Development Using the Compiler API. He's a leader of the Twin Cities Code Camp and holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Marquette University. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. 